It is so good to be here with you. Uh, as uh, Trevor said, my name is David Morrow. My family's been uh, hanging out at this church for about a decade now, and uh, I just want to say thank you for all of you that have been around here for a while, and many of which have both spoken to my life, spoken to my kids' life, encouraged us, and uh, just love being here. So thank you for being here, being a part of this community. I'm so excited to get to share with you today. And last week, we started a new series. And the series Greg started us off was called, it's called Turning the Tables. So for a number of months, we've been wrestling with what do you do with the portraits in the Old Testament where God looks violent. So we spent a lot of time doing that. Greg wrote a long book, by the book, all those things. Um, but here's the thing. There's also historically been a lot of people that have used some of the life of Jesus to try and figure out a way to justify their violence. Much of this started uh, with some of the growing of the just war theory with Augustine in the 400s, and it's really just kind of grown since then. And so we're tackling in this series, what do you do with the violent portraits of Jesus and other violent portraits in the New Testament, and how do you reconcile those with a God who is altogether nonviolent, enemy-loving, other-oriented, which is... I think, a worthy conversation. Now, last week, Greg looked at the story of the cleansing of the temple, and then he looked at the story where Jesus tells his disciples to go sell your cloaks and buy some swords. And so he walked us through how you can read those stories in a way that looks like the enemy-loving Jesus. So, if you want to know that, listen to the podcast, because that's not what we're doing today. And next week, Greg is going to be talking about what do you do with the violent portraits of the final judgment in the New Testament. And what about this place where Jesus seems to be condoning capital punishment? So if uh, I would really encourage you to come back next week, hear how Greg figures that one out. Um, for our purposes today, the main focus is around violence. And for lack of a better definition, when we say violence in this series, we're talking about anti-other aggression. And it's anti-other aggression that begins in our thoughts, that comes out of our mouth, and we walk in in our life. And it's anti-other aggression that demeans and diminishes the worth of another. So violence is anti-other aggression that starts in our thoughts, works out of our mouth, we walk out in our day, that demeans and diminishes the worth of another. So the thing I've been wrestling with this week, because even one week into this series, just for me, it's felt like a bit of a punch in the gut is what is my own personal just war theory? How do I justify my own violence? Because we all have people with whom we believe deserve our violence. And for some, it's the person you're thinking of in your head right now. For others, it's a group of people. For some, it's political figures. For any number of groups, we might find that person, that group, that individual that we think, well, you don't know what they did. They deserve that. They deserve that anti-other aggression. And so we're going to be wrestling with both what do we do with portraits of Jesus that look that way, but what do we do with ourselves when we start going down that path? So let's pray together, and then we're going to dive into a text. Father God, thank you that it is in you we learn what true love looks like. 
and it is loving those who crucify you. And uh, we just proclaim that we did that, and you still love us, and we say thanks. So, Father, would you speak through my words? Would you give me words that are from your spirit, that would land, that would make a meaning beyond this time together? So we thank you and we love you. Amen. So the title of this sermon is Hangry. Do you guys know the word hangry? All right, so this is my new favorite mug. Here's what it shows. Hangry is the Venn diagram center of hungry and angry. Isn't that nice? So here's the, there was actually a guy at the nine o'clock service who had a t-shirt on with the, that said hangry and had the definition. It was so cool. Is he still here? No? Okay, that would have been so great. Um, But essentially, hanger is anger caused by lack of food. Hunger causing a negative change in your emotional state. How many of you have spouses that sometimes get a bit hangry? Don't raise your hand. You're going to get in trouble. But here, my experience is that um, I notice this most with my children. See, what happens with my kids is they go from happy to, I notice I'm hungry, to hunger not immediately satisfied, to devastation. It's this very, very fast move. And and for us, my wife and I, we were just on vacation and we're in these gorgeous places and it's one of those, you know, parenting win moments where you're in these gorgeous places but your kids are laying face down on the cement because there's no pantry nearby for them to get their needed source of food. And there's a story in the Bible where Jesus is accused of being hangry. And that's what we're going to dive into today. And so if you have your Bible, you can open up to Mark 11. If you've got a smartphone, you can open it up there. I'd really encourage you to be following along as we dive into this together. So we're going to look at this story of the cursing of the fig tree, which I know I've never heard a sermon on the cursing of the fig tree until last night. And here's what we're going to look at is what do you do with this story that seemingly looks contradictory to the character of Jesus. So here's how it goes. It starts, Jesus entered Jerusalem. And now the context is, this is right after uh, the triumphal procession, so Palm Sunday. So this is the beginning of Holy Week. He enters Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, he looks around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And the next day, as they're leaving Bethany, it says Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree that was in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. But when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. So then he says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So he starts out there, and then five verses later, he finishes the story of the fig tree. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Amen. (laughs) What in the world? Do you ever read the Bible and think, well, that's strange? 
And if you're, if you're like me, sometimes you see those passages and you say, okay, what's next? Let's just not deal with it. And this has been a passage that has, has been used to attack Jesus um, by a lot of scholars. It, uh, many have said that he looks irrational, that he looks like he's having a temper tantrum, that he is revolting even, that he's overreacting. And it's the only destructive miracle that we have in the Gospels. So every other miracle, Jesus is taking something that is dead and bringing it alive in some way. And this is the only one we get where he's taking something that is alive and bringing death. Which is strange, isn't it? So what, what I've learned is that whenever I run into stories like that, my first job is to start getting curious and to say, what else could be going on here? And so when I got curious, I came up with 23 questions that I had about this story. So we're going to walk through. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I do have seven, six, six, seven, one of those two that we are going to look at. So tell me if any of these questions ring true for you. The first one, why did Jesus inspect the temple? It says the night before the fig tree incident, he went into the temple, he looked all around it, but he didn't say anything and he just left. So why would he do that? What's going on with the temple? And then how could Jesus still be hungry? And this is a little background because he's staying in Bethany apparently. And Bethany, he had some good friends in Bethany, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And there's a story in the Gospels where Martha is famous for making food in the kitchen and getting frustrated that other people aren't helping her. So to imagine that Jesus is staying with Martha and would ever be able to leave hungry is a bit strange. And yet it says he was hungry. So how could that be? And then why a fig tree? I mean, there's a lot of trees in the Middle East. It wouldn't have to be a fig tree. But for some reason, he dials in on a fig tree. So is there any other place in the Bible that might help us understand this about the meaning of a fig tree? And then two times in this story, it's mentioned that the fig tree, it had leaves, a lot of leaves, but no fruit. Now, if it mentions it once, maybe you, walk, you pass by it, but two times it says, this thing has leaves, but no fruit. Okay, wonder what's going on there. And then this is the one that has gotten Jesus in the most trouble. Why is Jesus surprised that there's no fruit when even Mark says it wasn't the season for figs? I mean, it'd be like if we have raspberry bushes in our backyard, it'd be like if in January I went out and was looking for fresh raspberries and then got angry at the raspberry bush for not having any. It's like, well, what in the world is going on? And then finally, why would Mark separate the story? So he starts out in verse 11, goes to verse 14, breaks it apart, does something else, and then finishes it off in verse 19. So why would he do that? All right, let's close. Um, uh, okay, so here's the deal. Some of the earliest interpreters of the text, they talked about Scripture like it was a gem. And they would say that Scripture is a gem because depending on how the light hits it, it would refract out in a certain way. 
But if you turn the gem just a little, when the light hits it, it goes in a totally different direction. So this morning, we're going to essentially take two turns of the gem together. And I need to give you a little background before we do that. But I just want to give you some context. That's where we're going. All right. Now, obviously, the next transition is I love sandwiches. Obviously. So here's the deal. So did Mark, apparently, because there are 10 times in Mark's gospel where he does what, and I like imagining scholars saying this, he has a sandwiching tendency. So fun. So what it means is he would start out a story, he would insert another story, and then he would finish the story. And he does this about 10 times in his gospel. And each time, the stories he puts together are meant to help you interpret what's going on. So, which begs the question, what story gets inserted in the midst of the fig tree? So he starts out and he curses the fig tree. And then he finishes by cursing the fig tree. But in the middle, look what he puts in there. Jesus cleansing the temple. Well, that's weird. So there's something about Jesus cleansing the temple that connects with Jesus cursing a fig tree. So in order to get there, we need to talk about figs. Who loves figs? I don't. But uh, in, in the ancient world, there were two kinds of figs, essentially. There were what are called the early figs, and then there are what are called fig newtons. And up until, up until about... A month ago, I honestly had never had fig outside of Newton form, which is delicious. But here's the deal. These fig trees, they would have these kind of like early figs, and then when it was fully in bloom, they would have the bigger figs. And these fig trees, they, they could actually grow to be like 20 feet tall. So these are these ancient trees that could be hundreds of and hundreds of years old that people would have noticed but these early figs, they're, they're called nodules. And I've got a picture of them here. So this is a fig tree in Israel in the spring, which would have been the time when Jesus was there cursing a fig tree. So you've got this fig tree. You can see one fig there that's a leftover from the previous years. Uh, but then you can see the little buds starting to come out. And what's fascinating about a fig tree is that the fruit on a fig tree shows up before the leaves ever do weird. So the fruit is before the leaves, which makes you wonder, why did Jesus show up to a tree and it said twice there were leaves all over it, but there's no fruit? And if a fig tree is supposed to get its fruit before the leaves, what is going on? And I think something of what we're seeing here is that growth without fruit is a sign of decay. That if you've got something that looks like it's growing, but there's no actual fruit to go with it, something has decayed on the inside. So the, this tree looks like it's alive, and G, but Jesus comes to it and pronounces what's really true is that you're just leaves. There's nothing growing there. And the question is, where do you notice your own decay? Where do you notice the places where if somebody looked at you from 10 feet away, they, may say, they might say, wow, that person's living for God. But when they get up this close, they notice there's something toxic. They notice there's something decaying in you. Now, fig trees are mentioned 68 times in the Bible. 
kind of weird. 68 times. So it's not like a random tree Jesus points out. This is a tree that has a history in the Bible. And the vast majority of times when trees are meant, the fig trees are mentioned, they're mentioned as a symbol of wealth, of prosperity, and of the provision of God. So the vast majority of times when a fig tree shows up, they would actually have a phrase that if things were going well, everybody would be under their own vine and fig tree. They would, they would have enough. But there's two key places in the Old Testament where fig trees are mentioned and the lack of fruit is a sign that something is not right. So the first one is in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he's just mourning over the coming devastation and destruction of Israel. So in Jeremiah 7, he, uh, there's this famous passage where Jeremiah is looking at the religious leaders and he says, you can't trust in the temple to save you if you're living totally off the mark. That you can't walk into a church and say, well, I'm in a church, I must be fine. You can't walk into the temple and say, well, I'm in the temple, everything's going to be okay, even though I'm disrespecting, I'm living out of injustice, I'm using other people. And it's the same passage in Jeremiah 7 that Jesus quotes when he cleanses the temple and says, you've made my house into a den of thieves, into a den of robbers. And then in the very next chapter in Jeremiah 8, here's what it says. God says, I'll take away their harvest to the religious leaders. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I've given them will be taken. So Jeremiah connects the destruction of the temple with a barren fig tree. That's interesting. And what's more interesting, I think, is that this verse, Jeremiah 8.13, is still read once a year, every year, in the Jewish synagogue. And it's read on the ninth day of the month of Av in the Jewish calendar, which is the day of mourning and fasting for the destruction of the first temple. So within Jewish tradition, there's still this understanding that a barren fig tree equates to a destroyed temple. I wonder why Mark connected the barren fig tree with Jesus cleansing the temple. So there's one other Old Testament verse, Micah 7. God says, what misery is mine. And it's like I can almost see this mourning God. I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. There's a different word in Hebrew for early figs. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. So again, the destruction of the people and God bringing judgment on the Israelite leadership is connected with a fig tree being barren. And this is where we get kind of the first turn of the gem, is that I think what Jesus is getting at is that when our spiritual life and the religion that we say we live is hollow, that it's dead. That if we've got what looks like growth on the outside, but there's nothing really going on in our heart, that it's decaying. I mean, the parallels are so fascinating. Jesus walks into the temple to inspect it. 
and he walks up to a fig tree to inspect it. And then he walks into the temple to cleanse the temple, right? And then he walks up to a fig tree and it withers from the root. That here's what N.T. Wright says, and if you ever just want to know what the truth is on something, you just ask N.T. Wright. So he says what Jesus is doing in the temple is cognate with what he's doing to the fig tree. He's come seeking fruit, and finding none is announcing the temple's doom. The fig tree action is therefore an acted parable of an acted parable. That as Greg talked about last week, the cleansing of the temple is this prophetic action, this prophetic parable of the religious leaders turning the temple into something it was never meant to be. And that at the fig tree, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's making the same point that there's no hope in the temple. Here's a quote by a poet named John Keats. He says, Axioms in philosophy are not axioms till they have proved upon our pulses. Axioms are not axioms till they've proved upon our pulses. So, so an axiom, it's just a statement that we agree on being true. So like um, uh, a rolling stone gathers no... Yeah, a house divided against itself can't. Yeah, so it's something we agree on. But it only works if it has a heartbeat to it, if there's life in it, if it has a pulse behind it. And I think what Jesus is announcing is something that others missed, that the temple and the sacrificial system were dead because there was no life. There was no pulse in it. It's, it's like, I, I just, I picture... Jesus, when he goes to inspect the temple, like he's wearing a stethoscope, like a doctor, like just putting it up everywhere he can find in the temple, just hoping there's going to be a heartbeat somewhere. And he keeps checking, keeps checking, and then comes back the next day and says, I already checked. There's no life here. There's no life here. And it doesn't work because it's possible to perform all the right religious rituals and have no pulse, right? It's possible to have, to look like you've got all the passion in the world with no pulse. It's possible for me to stand up here preaching to you with no real heartbeat behind it. I can just memorize creative words. It's possible to seek out all the pleasure in the world and then realize after you've done it, there was no life there. It's possible for me to do my job as a chaplain at the mission and talk with guys that are just wrestling with some of the hardest stuff of life and just memorize, well, what's the thing I could say that'll make you feel better? Rather than actually putting my heart into it, which is the thing that actually costs us something. It's possible to be a dad or a mom or a worker or whatever you do, but to do it just going through the motions without a heart behind it. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at, is saying... The figs were dead. Just because they had leaves didn't mean there was life there. Just because you got leaves doesn't mean there's life there. And then 40 years later, the temple's destroyed. And the fig tree withers from the root up. Because where does our violence begin? It begins right here. It begins in our head and in our heart, and it's the outpouring of that. And then in Matthew, Matthew tells the story of the fig tree also, but he finishes the fig tree story by saying this to the religious leaders. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That if there's no fruit, there's no life. So that's the first turn of the gem. 
The second turn, and this is, okay, this is the one that's super fun. Okay, so we're going to nerd out for a sec. So some of the earliest interpreters of the Bible, they would, they would look for hints in Scripture to try and figure out what was going on. And they, they would do things like, like Mark, how he would sandwich stories together, which he doesn't tell you he's doing that. But if you notice it, you start kind of catching glimpses of what's going on. And one of the other things they would do is they would find key words in a text and then they would say, well, where does that word show up the first time in Scripture? It's called the principle of first mention. And it it sounded kind of hokey as I was first learning about this in seminary and, and then I ran across an example in the Exodus story. So the ninth plague in the Exodus is the plague of darkness where it says darkness fell over the whole nation of Egypt, but in each Israelite house there was light. In each Israelite house there was still light. And so, so then you kind of, okay, so what's the deal? Like where does the first time where there's a scripture that darkness and light are connected like that? And it's in Genesis 1, in the creation story. And so these Jewish interpreters, the rabbis, they looked at it and said, oh, I wonder if what God was doing in Genesis by creating a new beginning is what he's doing in the Exodus, bringing his people out into a new beginning. And, and it starts to kind of make the text feel a little three-dimensional. So as I was wrestling with this passage, I said, okay, so where do figs show up for the first time? Where in the Bible do we hear about figs? Anybody know? Genesis, yeah. Genesis 3, verse 7. Here's what it says. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Huh. I mean, it's an obvious parallel, so... um. Okay, so why fig leaves? Why not olive leaves? Why not a tamarisk tree? Why not any of the other trees they could have grabbed? And... One of the things that you see in the earliest interpreters of the Bible is that they were almost 99% convinced that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a fig tree. That's strange. And, well, but it kind of makes sense because if you realize you're naked, which tree are you going to start grabbing to cover yourself with? The closest one. And in the ancient world and in the Middle East, the largest leafed tree is a fig tree. So this is my hand next to a fig leaf. So the leaves are bigger than your hand. So not only are you going to look for a tree that's closest to you, but you're going to look for the biggest one that's going to be able to cover the most real estate. (laughs) So there's something going on here connecting the curse in Genesis with Jesus cursing a fig tree. And it goes even deeper because within the apocalyptic writing at the time of Jesus, there was a general assumption that a tree was barren, not just because it was barren, it was barren because it was under the curse of the enemy. And that if a tree was growing prolifically, it's because God was blessing it. So what is going on here? I think that there is a hint that not only is Jesus cursing a fig tree, but he's cursing the curse itself. That he's saying that thing that you've used for decades and centuries and millennium to hide yourself and keep you at a distance from God, I'm saying no more. 
It doesn't get to be around anymore. And you don't have to live with the facade. You don't have to live with the charade. It's like with some of the guys I work with at the mission who are in the midst of recovery, it's like sometimes you need everything to die before you can realize you need help. It's like sometimes you can... You can, you can like, if there's just the littlest bit of a heartbeat, you're going to keep pretending you can do it yourself. You can keep pretending, oh, I've got the power, I can do this, until you finally realize, I can't do it. I give up. And the fig tree withers, and we finally realize the curse is broken. We finally realize it's broken because Jesus is not just cursing a tree, he's cursing the curse itself. So there's a couple things I want you to um, kind of take as we begin to wrap up. The first is there's danger in having leaves without having fruit. Because the issue Jesus had with this tree honestly wasn't the lack of fruit. The issue he had with the tree was it had leaves all over but no fruit. That it's possible to look fruitful and just be deceptive. That there's a danger that we can have, and this happens especially in the churches too, is that we get busy. We get busy and we think that a relationship with God equals doing stuff for God. And to the degree that we do that, we lose our pulse. Because it's not coming from a center, from a source, which is where our violence begins, right? So I can look like I'm doing all the right things for God, but my thoughts... And my words, they are anti-other. They're diminishing the worth of somebody. And I'm doing it in my mind, but I look like I'm following. I look like I'm doing the right stuff. And there is a danger there because that's where our life is. Our life is when we put God at the center so that out of that, we have lives of love, lives of hope. And then the second thing I want you to take away is that Jesus is cursing the curse. That the leaves that we use to hide our shame and hide our guilt and to hide our violence are obliterated by Jesus and we just need to start waking up to it. That if I could sing like Delon, I would say that because of his forgiveness, I don't have to hide my shame anymore. Because of his forgiveness, I don't have to hide my shame anymore. Did you hear me? (laughs) Because of his forgiveness, I don't have to hide my shame anymore. That it's done, it's over. And this is why I think it's not ultimately a violent act against the tree. What's really going on is Jesus is proclaiming what's already true about this tree is that it's dead. And it's dead as a result of being part of this collateral damage of the curse that Jesus came to curse. And he said, this tree is collateral damage and I'm going to remind you that that is not the end of the story. That is not the end of the story. So last week, Greg gave us some homework. He asked us to think about a conflict that we've had recently that we didn't respond to well. Anybody do their homework? I did, but I was preaching next week. So, And the question was not so much, what did you like say or do in the conflict? The question was more, what was underneath your violence? What was underneath it that acts as a toxin to you? With whom do you sense an inclination in yourself towards violence? Who is it easy for you to justify it towards? Is it a single person? Is it a group of people? Maybe it's yourself. 
Maybe you justify it because you still have so much shame and you can't forgive yourself. So you've got the narrative in your head about how you're not worthy, about how you can't handle it. My own personal just war theory that I use most often shows up with my kids. Because I don't know, this might just be me, but sometimes my kids have a tendency not to listen to me. And they, it can be easy to coerce, manipulate, control, get loud, disengage. And the struggle I've had to wrestle with this week is what's underneath the violence? What's underneath that? And I I think it's two things. I think for me, it's fear. It's fear that if they don't listen to me in this moment, you know how, how you run through your head, the 18 steps down the line and then they're in prison for the rest of their life? It's fear that if I don't squash this, it's going to have long-term effects. And it's a desire to control because life mostly feels pretty out of control. And there's, if you feel like you can control one thing, it's like I can bottle that up, I can box that in. The problem is, it's in those moments that I most tend to default to power over rather than power under because I'm not sure I believe in power under. There can be a tendency to believe that the way down of serving and self-sacrificial love doesn't work as well as the way up of coercing, manipulating, controlling, using power. And I think the reality is I don't necessarily trust in the power of self-sacrificial, other-oriented enemy love to the degree that I should. Because I have a choice at the end of the day with my kids. I can walk in their room and I can say, what did you do? Why did you do that today? Why did you hit that kid? Why did you break that? Why did you do all those things? I can't believe it. Which I've done. Um... Or I could walk into the room and I could say, this is a hard day. I don't think dad reacted the way he should have. But here's what you got to know. There is nothing you could ever do to make me not love you. There's absolutely nothing you could ever do to make me not love you. And here's the deal. God bet everything that that is the most powerful force in the world. He bet everything because he could have coerced us. He could manipulate. He could control us. He could tell us, do this, do that, and, we're, and make it neat and tidy. And yet he came into the world and said that the most powerful force in the world is other-oriented, self-sacrificial, enemy-loving type of love. And I think that's our invitation. <laughs> Our invitation is to, within ourselves, with other people, with our community, begin to get freed from the violence of believing that power over is actually more powerful than what God says is more powerful. That's our challenge. And it's a challenge for me, and I think it's a challenge for us as a church, because when that shows up, the world turns upside down. Just look at Jesus. The world turns upside down when we start to believe that.
So, as we close, uh, would you stand with me? And here's the deal. There is a God who said he loves you and there's nothing you could ever do to make him love you less. And if, if you have never been introduced to that God, we would love to introduce you to him. And there are going to be some prayer teams up front. If you have questions about that or you're thinking, okay, yes, I'm going to say yes and start this journey with God, they would love to help you start that journey. And if there are places in you where you notice that tendency for violence in thought, in word, in action that is diminishing the worth of another, would you come and get prayer? Because here's the deal, you can't do it alone. You can't get out of that cycle in your mind alone. So let's do this together and may we go today knowing the curse has been cursed. The curse has been cursed and the power of self-sacrificial love is the most powerful force in the world. Amen? Amen. Have a good day.